0: My theme is simple, and I think it's going to be um, one of the shorter sermons I have ever preached. you will be glad to hear. <laughs> <Ha>! Okay, don't cheer <laughs> too loud. Come on. Yeah, my problem is um, I teach um, seven or eight classes a week, and the shortest class I teach is an hour. Most of the classes I teach are ninety minutes. So if you you know if you hand me a microphone, um. And say go, I'm, I'm gonna go for 90 minutes unless I stop myself. So I've, I've tried to restrain myself today. We will, we shall see. Let me pray, then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for today. Thank you again that you have so blessed us, um, and so, so richly and with your favor, inclined to us, called us into your kingdom, reconciled us to yourself by the death of your son revealed yourself to us through him, given us your word, sent us your spirit to guide us into the truth. Thank you. I pray, Father, that um, the things I say this morning will be the things that you want to be said. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my theme is truth. And it's astonishing to me that over the past three, four, five years... Um, I've started to see repetitively um, people talking openly about the lies that are all around us, the lies that we are confronted with, the lies that we have been deceived by. Um, This is not a new theme. It goes quite a ways back. Um, Most people um, would identify Alexander Solzhenitsyn as the one who sort of started the analysis that begins with the phrase, live not by lies. He said it was the only thing that a citizen of the Soviet Union living under total uh, oppression and control by the state could do. You couldn't, they, they had a monopoly on force, you couldn't overthrow them. There was very little you could do to resist the tyranny. He said, but what you can do is live not by lies. And he left an essay. Um, in his apartment in Moscow when they expelled him from the Soviet Union with that title. And it was taken up by a number of the other dissidents in Eastern Europe. And, of course, we look over that period historically now, and we can identify the lies that were being told by governments to their people. They lied about everything. Um, They lied about um, what was going on around them in the society they lied about history and what had happened in the past they lied about human nature Um, they just told lie after lie and you were not allowed to question the lies you actually were um, through a variety of um, very calculated kinds of peer pressure encouraged to adopt and repeat the lies and so Solzhenitsyn's advice was live not by lies that Phrase has been picked up. It was picked up by other dissidents in the East, some that we know, and some that are a little more obscure. I could do um, a whole ninety minutes <laughs> on that on that topic, but I will not. Um, but I want to talk about a particular lie. We think about the lies of the Eastern totalitarian communist governments. There are lies in our culture too. We have been told a bunch of lies um, we have been. Um, deceived, and it's no accident, in fact, it's fundamental that the scripture refers to Satan as the father of lies, and Jesus identifies himself as the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And truth is a powerful thing. Jesus is the truth. The scriptures are the truth about Jesus, and that truth is trustworthy, reliable, and it's not just true in some sort of isolated, compartmentalized religious sphere. God's truth breaks those bonds. God's truth is true for everybody, whether you believe it or not. It's true. This is one bit of the truth that I want to focus on, um, not just about the value of human life from conception, that's an important truth, but what it tells us about the world, the created world that we live in. If you want to go ahead and flip to the next slide. Um, There are actually some related verses. Hello. Oh, the image on the right, by the way, is one I really like. Because the previous verse talks about, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Hebrew word actually probably is more a reference to something like embroidery, Um, but so you have a couple of knitting needles spinning out uh, a DNA slide. Okay, hit page down. (laughs) Page down should take you to the next slide. Yeah, right. This is this is just technology. Ain't technology wonderful? Well, I can go ahead and read you the verses. So, oh, there they are. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, first, first verse of the first book of the Bible. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Are you getting a theme here? That's Psalm 19.1. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That was the slide I had before. And then Paul picks up this theme in Romans for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Next slide. Okay, well, I'll just read them to you. You have been lied to. Are you aware you have been lied to? Probably. You may not be able to identify all of the lies. Actually, you are being lied to. English is wonderful in its uh, variety of tenses. Present continuous, starting in the past, continuing on into the future. Next slide. Here's where the particular lie that I want to address today started. There we go. You knew I was going to do something historical, right? So here's the history of the world. Ancient medieval modern, and it's it's a little bit like um, a Mandelbrot set. You can dive in a level deeper, and it's just as complicated. And you can dive in another level deeper, and it's just as complicated. And you can dive in another level deeper, and it's just as complicated. Um, our modern world, most people would say, begins with the Renaissance and the printing press. That's the modern invention that kicked off the modern world. The Reformation follows hard on its heels and is enabled by the printing press. It's the Internet of its day. Martin Luther went viral. It's absolutely the right way to understand what happened. Followed by the Enlightenment, 1600 to 1800. And you can open up, we'll go a level deeper. The Enlightenment is characterized by a scientific revolution. Galileo and Newton. An industrial revolution, the steam engine for the first time in human recorded history, you were not limited by the speed of your feet or of a horse. And your ability to use force and apply force to nature was multiplied and amplified. There's a communication revolution that comes a little later in the the late 1800s. We figure out that Lightning is actually electricity, and we can harness it, and we can use it to transmit um, words, ideas, later sounds, and then later even pictures. And then we have an electronic revolution where in my lifetime we have mastered the um, microcomputer uh, world, and it has changed the world. And so now we've moved on into the postmodern world. Now characterizing all of this, next slide, is the idea that the arrow of time has gone up. We have made progress. And in some very real senses, that is true. We have made progress. We, we do things now, you know. This would blow people's mind from a hundred years ago. Actually, it blows my mind and I'm a lot less years old than that, but it still blows my mind. We have made progress in our mastery over nature, in our understanding of the natural world, and in our ability to manipulate the natural world. The lie is that human nature has also made progress. That's not true. And I can easily demonstrate that. Um, I do it with my students all the time. I can take you back to things that were written 2,000 years ago. And could have been written yesterday. I can take you, in fact I invite you and encourage you, read St. Augustine's autobiography. St. Augustine's Confessions. He describes his own conversion, describes his own youth and childhood, his fascination with sin, his resistance. Even after he had been convinced of the truth of the gospel, he didn't want to become a Christian. Because he knew he'd have to give up his mistress. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Next slide. This is the lie. And it's the lie that's been taught to us. It's a lie that was taught to me before modern critical theory did its thing on the education system. This was the lie that was taught to me when I was in elementary school and high school. Is that the rise of scientific progress has been accompanied by a decline in religion because we don't need religion anymore to understand the world. Next slide. Science has disproved religion. This lie starts in the enlightenment. It gets stronger. Over several centuries, this is not a new idea. This is not some communist plot that was. This was, this this lie existed before communism was dreamed of. This is human hubris, human arrogance, human pride—a rejection of the Creator. Some would argue that it's motivated by people who don't want to live by God's law, and therefore, when their consciences are troubled, it's to soothe themselves. They want to be reassured that God doesn't exist. One of my favorite um, books of the last 50 years, probably one of the early books that R.C. Sproul wrote, um, called The Psychology of Atheism, and it flips the psychological critique of Christianity on its ear and says that atheism is a crutch. Atheism is a crutch for people who don't want to deal with a holy God who might judge wrong behavior. So we invent the idea, we fool ourselves, we lie to ourselves that there isn't a God so that we don't have to be troubled by our feelings of guilt for the things we've done that were wrong, that were sinful. But this lie has persisted. This lie began several centuries ago. It has been thoroughly dispersed, spread, proclaimed around the world. It's been adopted in most, if not all, of the textbooks that are offered. It is one of the fundamental um, lessons that is taught in our government-approved system of education. Don't get me started. Factory-model government schools. Okay. Yeah. Because... Evolution explains the origin of life, and so God is no longer a necessary hypothesis. We don't need a story about how God created us because science has provided the answer. Next slide. Funny thing happened. At least I think it's funny. I think God thinks it's funny. In the early years of the 21st century, some scientists... Small crack in the Y. Some scientists published some books. Next slide. 1996. Michael Behe. Here Professor Dr. Michael Behe. He has a, um, PhD in biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania. He's a professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University. He's done 40 or 50 published peer-reviewed articles on topics other than um, evolution and he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. Now there had been opposition to the theory of evolution by people for the last hundred and fifty years. This book was unusual in a couple of respects. Number one, the author was a PhD in microbiology from one of the elite East Coast schools and a professor at a university. And the central thesis of his book is that there are certain biological systems which are irreducibly complex. And he gives three examples. He talks about the eye. It's hard to imagine a step-by-step random set of mutations that produce, goes in an animal which has no sense of vision to an eye. And the astonishing thing about the fossil record is it looks as though the eye appears simultaneously in about 40 different families in the fossil record. We don't have any common ancestors for the eye. And you take away any part of it, and it doesn't work at all, which means there would be no evolutionary reason to select for somebody with a non-functioning eye. That's one. The other that he uses, there we go, is the whole blood clotting system in um, mammals. Turns out, blood clotting is, A, incredibly complicated, still somewhat mysterious, and any small tinkering with the mechanism of blood clotting, and the mammal dies. You either bleed to death because your blood doesn't clot properly, or you die of a stroke or a heart attack because your blood clots when it shouldn't. There's this incredible fine line, a system of balance, and it's not just a A A-B balance. There's a multiple cascade sequence of systems that all have to be perfectly aligned in order for your blood to continue to circulate and for you not to die of blood loss and not to die of blood clotting. Interestingly, that is the subject of Behe's Ph.D. His Ph.D. research was on sickle cell anemia. So he's basically focused on this part of mammalian anatomy. and He says there's no way this complicated cascade system with about eight or nine, if not 10 or 11 steps, is generated by chance. Because unless you have all 10 or 11 steps balanced with the proteins and the signals and the stop and start, and because when you injure yourself, you want there to be a blood clot. And when the blood clot stops the bleeding, you want the clotting to stop. If it doesn't do both things, you die. It's an incredibly complicated mechanism, a biological mechanism we don't think about much. The third one that he talks about is... um, Little tiny bacteria, one-celled creatures, some of which come equipped with an outboard motor. And, and that's not facetious. They have a motor. They have a flagellum. It actually spins 360 degrees. It has a rotor and a stator. And again, you have incredibly complex system. If you take away a piece of it, if you break a part of it, it doesn't work and it's useless. So how do a random series of mutations produce something that is that complicated? I've got a video we're going to try and show here that gives you some idea of the, the complicated nature of biological systems. Let's see if we can get that up. And the interesting thing about this animation, because when I went through and took high school biology, we were just barely sequencing DNA. Um, I saw it. So there we go. All right, this is worth watching. This is what we now know about the working of your cell.
1: He's got some These are tiny molecular machines, and they're doing this inside your body right now. To understand why, we have to zoom out. Every day in an adult human body, 50 to 70 billion of your cells die. Either they're stressed, or damaged, or just old. But this is normal, in fact it's called programmed cell death. But to make up for all these lost cells, right now billions of your cells are dividing, essentially creating new cells. And that process of cell division, also called mitosis, well, it requires an army of tiny molecular machines. So let's take a closer look. DNA is a good place to start, the double helix molecule we always talk about. This is a scientifically accurate depiction of DNA created by Drew Barry at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. If you unwind the two strands, you can see that each has a sugar phosphate backbone connected to the sequence of nucleic acid-base pairs, known by the letters A, T, G, and C. Now, the strands run in opposite directions, which is important when you go to copy DNA. Copying DNA is one of the first steps in cell division here the two strands of DNA are being unwound and separated by the tiny blue molecular machine called helicase helicase literally spins as fast as a jet engine the strand of DNA on the right has its complementary strand assembled continuously but the other strand is more complicated because it runs in the opposite direction so it must be looped out with its complementary strand assembled in reverse section by section At the end of this process, you have two identical DNA molecules, each one a few centimeters long, but just a couple nanometers wide. So to prevent the DNA from becoming a tangled mess, it is wrapped around proteins called histones, forming a nucleosome. These nucleosomes are bundled together into a fiber known as chromatin, which is further looped and coiled to form a chromosome, one of the largest molecular structures in your body. You can actually see chromosomes under a microscope in dividing cells. Only then do they take on their characteristic shape, otherwise the DNA is more strewn inside the nucleus. The process of dividing a cell takes around an hour in mammals, so this footage is from a time lapse. You can see how the chromosomes line up on the equator of the cell. Now when everything is right, they are pulled apart into the two new daughter cells, each one containing an identical copy of DNA. Now simple as this looks, the process is incredibly complicated and requires even more fascinating molecular machines to accomplish it. So let's look at a single chromosome. One chromosome consists of two sausage-shaped chromatids containing the identical copies of DNA made earlier. Each chromatid is attached to microtubule fibers, which guide and help align them in the correct position. The microtubules are connected to the chromatid at the kinetochore, here colored red. The kinetochore consists of hundreds of different proteins working together to achieve multiple objectives. In fact, it's one of the most sophisticated molecular mechanisms inside your body. The kinetochore is central to the successful separation of the chromatids. It creates a dynamic connection between the chromosome and the microtubules. For a reason no one's yet been able to figure out, the microtubules are constantly being built at one end and deconstructed at the other. While the chromosome is still getting ready, the kinetochore sends out a chemical stop signal to the rest of the cell, shown here by the red molecules, basically saying this chromosome is not yet ready to divide. The kinetochore also mechanically senses tension. When the tension is just right and the position and attachment are correct, all the proteins get ready, shown here by turning green. At this point, the stop signal broadcasting system is not switched off, instead it is literally carried away from the kinetochore down the microtubules by a dynein motor, that's the walking guy. This is really what it looks like. It has long legs so it can avoid obstacles and step over the kinesins, molecular motors that walk in the opposite direction. Personally, I'm astounded by these tiny molecular machines. How they're able to routinely and faithfully execute their functions billions of times over inside your body at this exact instant. I'm also amazed by the scientists who were able to work out how this happens in such detail that we could create realistic depictions of them like you saw in the animations in this video. But perhaps the most amazing thing is just how much is left to be discovered, like figuring out how exactly the chromatids are pulled to opposite ends of the cell. There is still so much that we don't quite know. You know, what I find exciting is that in science fiction, for decades, we've been writing about tiny nanobots that will be injected into our bloodstreams that can heal us. But what this suggests, the existence of these tiny molecular machines inside us, it suggests that there isn't a physical limit that would prevent that. And so I think it's pretty likely that in future, we will be able to develop our own tiny molecular machines that will be able to repair our bodies better than they can repair themselves.
0: (laughs) Well, you'll apologize for the bit of hubris at the end. The amazing thing about that is none of that was known when I was taking high school biology. I took high school biology before we had sequenced DNA. We assumed the cell was just a rather simple mechanism, a simple um, portion that did a few simple things with a few components, and you learned the components and how to label them. Um, The critique of that animation, by the way, that is seen most frequently on the Internet is that it oversimplifies what is going on in the cell. When the scriptures say you are fearfully and wonderfully made, it is an understatement. The complexity of how we are made is truly astonishing. All right. Back to the uh, slideshow. Next next slide. Next book. 2010. Stephen Meyer publishes a book called Signature in the Cell. Stephen Meyer is an interesting guy. Um, he went to Whitworth College out on the Pacific Northwest. He got a double major in physics and earth science. He then went to Cambridge in England, University of Cambridge, as an MPhil in the history and philosophy of science and then a PhD in the history and philosophy of science and he published this book because his specialty is actually information theory and what he presented as a critique of um, Darwinian evolution is that now that we understand what DNA is it's a set of instructions it in fact resembles a computer program It is processed step-by-step to accomplish certain functions, not just its own replication, but the fabrication of all the various working components of a cell, of which there are literally thousands and thousands. And the DNA are the computer instructions for how you assemble that. It is both an operating computer and a 3D printer in every sense of the word. The DNA and the cell mechanisms function as a 3D printer, and the DNA are the instructions for the 3D printer for how to make all the things that are necessary in each individual cell. And the fundamental insight that Meyer says when he talks about the signature in the cell, DNA is a computer program. A computer program is a series of carefully thought out steps, instructions. It is information And we never have information without it being encoded from an intelligent sender. When you process signals in the communications world, you want to distinguish between noise and signal. Signal has content and a sender. DNA is a signal. It is not noise. It is not random. It is information, it is encoded. Next slide. This this actually led, of all people, you've probably heard the name Richard Dawkins. Dawkins is a, a, a biologist, uh, a very outspoken, prominent atheist, um, often mocks and ridicules Christians and, and has mocked and ridiculed intelligent design. In an unguarded moment in trying to teach his students about DNA, He says, the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. Apart from differences in jargon, the pages of a molecular biology journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. Well, he just gave away the game. (laughs) Computer programs do not write themselves. Computer operating systems do not arise by random mutations on the existing operating system. If your computer operating system has a random mutation, it's a bug. It probably means it stops working. A computer program implies a programmer necessarily. And that's Meyer's central thesis and he's got it backed up from here to Sunday. All puns intended. Next slide. Third book, also by Michael Behe. So 24 24 years? Yeah, 24 years after his first book. He published a book because he's continued to do research. He's a microbiologist. Sickle cell anemia has been his area of research. He continues to look at um, molecular biological systems. And adaptation. And he's re-examining a lot of Darwin's data about species differentiation and adaptation. Adaptation is a well-known documented observable phenomenon. We do see biological organisms which adapt to their environment. And he says, so how is this happening and, and what is the explanation for why it happens? Well, something interesting has occurred. Next slide. Mutations do sometimes produce favorable adaptations. But it's based upon the idea that there is information encoded in the DNA of every living species. In fact, an incredible amount, the quantity of information in DNA is orders of magnitude greater than the computer steps in an operating system. There's an incredible degree of complexity and specificity. There's actually more instructions embedded in the DNA than are being used. DNA actually allows for a variety. Encoded into the DNA of every living creature is the capability of producing variations. We see that in human beings. We see that in animals. We see that in animals that we breed. We see that in things like cats and dogs. So in the original type for each family of living things, this is Behe's observation, um, which is he's, he's confirmed with a great deal of research. The original type for each family of living things, called what the Bible calls a kind, contains the instructions for how to produce variations within that kind. It's why you can take a dog. It's why Noah didn't have to take Great Danes and Chihuahuas onto the ark. He just had to take a dog, because a dog contains within its DNA information the necessary instructions for the variety of dogs which can be bred. And adaptation actually involves turning off all the variations except one. Adaptation actually involves not adding to the genetic code, but turning off, or as he says, breaking and disabling parts of the genetic code. So you break or disable all of the other variations except the one that you want. You throw away, in fact, the instructions for all of the other variations that you are not interested in, which is why you can get a Great Dane and a Chihuahua. But there's something interesting about adaptation, and especially in that example of breeding. Breeders have known this for several hundred years. Biologists are catching up you can produce a chihuahua or a great dane from a dog from the prototype of the dog but once you get to that variation and you've broken discarded turned off all of the other information for all the variations you don't want you can't go back you can't take a great dane and breed great danes to get back to a chihuahua because the information for the for the variance that is a chihuahua is gone Adaptation occurs, Behe um, is a thesis in this book, and it's rocking the biological world. It's only been out for three years now. Adaptation is the result of devolving. You have to have a kind which has the information for the variants. You produce the variants by turning off everything except the specific variant you want. And that turned-off DNA is lost. The mutation is actually usually a result of breaking the DNA and discarding that portion of the code. And you can't go backwards. You can only go in one direction. You can't breed a Great Dane from a Chihuahua. You can breed Chihuahuas all you want. You'll never get a Great Dane. You can breed Great Danes all you want. You'll never get a Chihuahua. But you can go back to the original dog who was domesticated, and you can and so this is this is He says he's, adaptation is a biological fact that we've seen. Darwin's finches, famous example. It's what Darwin led to develop his theory of evolution. He said the finches were acquiring different beak structures because of the um, available food on the various islands where they lived. He discovered there were finches who appeared to have a common ancestor and had developed different sized beaks depending upon the available food in the different islands of the Galapagos. It's an observable fact. He didn't know anything about DNA. He didn't realize that you could sequence their DNA and find out to what degree they were related. We can do that now. But what's happened is there was a prototypical finch at some point back in the past that had the ability to produce a variety of beak structures. The separated breeding groups then adapted for the beak structure that worked best with the food that was available to them. And so from an original kind, you've now got Finches who are adapted to the food that's available to them. But you can't go back to that original finch. And the original finch is as far as the line goes, because that actually matches what we know from Genesis. In God's act of creation, he created each kind and gave them all the information they needed for all the varieties of that kind. And what we see as adaptation is not step-by-step, randomly, without any direction, without any input from any intelligence, you know, a cell producing, an amphibian producing, a mammal producing. And so, you know, we go from one-celled creatures to dolphins to cows to chimpanzees to us. Nope. A, there's no evidence in the fossil record for that. And B, genetically it doesn't work. There's no mechanism that would enable that. But we can, from an original mating pair of each kind, we can produce all the variety that we see. We can't explain scientifically. So, yeah, here's, by the way, (laughs) next slide. Here's some of Behe's research on um, mutations producing favorable adaptations. Yeah, this was a research paper you produced for, and you see there are dog breeds, fruit bats. These are, are um, various portions of the genome that have been turned on and other portions turned off. And so you get these variations which uh, result in adaptation. Okay, uh, I already walked myself through the next slide. So back to the three, back to the three books. There we go. Darwin's black box, irreducible complexity. Time plus chance will never produce human life, will never produce even single-celled life. There's not enough time in the universe for the randomly um, colliding molecules to produce that. Signature in the cell, DNA contains information. Information always is a result of an encoder, someone sending the signal. And Darwin devolves, adaptation doesn't occur by the addition of information, but by the selection of pre-existing information and the discarding of other bits of information. But the information existed from the beginning. So back to the, the lie. The lie that I was taught and the lie that dominates the culture. Evolution explains the origin of life. God is no longer a necessary hypothesis. Nope, the refutation of the lie. Behe, I think, says it best in Darwin Devolves. We got that slide? There it is. Life is the product of a mind. The scientific evidence proves this. This is the truth. This is the truth, and it's, it's to me, hugely ironic, almost to the point of being amusing, that 21st century, that the leading thinkers in the fields of biology and information theory have come right back around to establishing the truth of what the Bible teaches. Life is the product of a mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been All truth is God's truth. We have nothing to fear from the truth. Truth confirms the truth of the Scriptures. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've given us a trustworthy revelation of yourself. Thank you that your nature is written into the details of the things that have been made. Thank you that The intricacies of life, the intricacies of our human bodies, proclaim your glory and your design. Thank you that you have not left us without testimonies to your existence. Thank you that you sent your Son, inspired your prophets and writers to record the truth and transmit it to us. Thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth. I pray a blessing on these folks, all those who are here today, all those who are watching or listening now or in the future. Pray that you will continue to lead us and guide us, show us how we can proclaim the truth to those around us and how we can work to spread the good news of your gospel and the expansion of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. And it is 11.02. Oh uh, and and Lisa is just reminding me I'll remind you next week we are having a fellowship dinner so bring a um, style uh, we're having a chili We're providing hot dogs. everybody bring your best chili.